The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks that which has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. So I would have you turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. Again, the way to get there is to... Uh, open your Bible right in the middle, and then you're in the neighborhood. You just go to the right, uh, two, two houses down. We've got Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes there, and you can uh, follow along in your Bibles if you have those in front of you. Well, uh, Justin, is uh, he had a funeral this last week that he attended. Um, I'm not sure if he was overseen or not, but he attended, and then a um, wedding uh, yesterday, I believe, out of town, and so he did um, ask that... Uh, I come for a second time and, and return. So here I am, and um, glad to be here, glad to be in God's Word, and glad to be doing that with you, and glad that we depend upon the Holy Spirit for the work that uh, needs to be done in our hearts and our lives. So with that, let's uh, pray and ask for help. So Father, thank you for um, not leaving us alone. Thank you that you have revealed to us your word. You've given it to us. Father, that not only have you given it to us, but then you have given us your spirit to help us to uh, take it and apply it to our hearts and our lives. And Father, we're in desperate need of that. And so thank you that you enjoy uh, bringing your word to to us. And so we pray, please do that right now. Please um, Speak through my mind and uh, speak through my vocal cords, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in last, week, last week's message, Solomon dives into deep waters and asks the question, how do we find meaning in life? And it's second question he asks is, is it possible to find that meaning apart from God. And so he took on three experiments, three uh, real life experiments. The first was the pursuit of pleasure. The second was the, the pursuit of wisdom. And the third was the pursuit of hard work. And his conclusion was, as one could pursue, as one who could pursue all three within unlimited resources, his conclusion was, look at chapter two, verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Or verse 17 at the end, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. 
into verse 23. This also is vanity. Vanity. Like a vapor, like a breath on a cold day. So Solomon concludes, meaning is only possible if God is part of the equation. So coffee tastes better. Music is richer. Cooking is tastier. Work is more impactful. Recreation, more thrilling. If, one, you seek enjoyment in God's gifts, like the gift of finding enjoyment in your toil, whatever your work is, God, that God has given you. So you go chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. And so you're, you seek enjoyment in the gift of material things, eat and drink, which in Near Eastern ancient culture refers to all material things. And that you seek enjoyment in the gift of the present moment. Look, verse 25, chapter 2. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? No one. He is the giver of life in the moment. And then, number two, not only do you find meaning by seeking enjoyment in God's gifts, but in his pleasure of you. So verse 26 of chapter 2. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, which puts us and seemingly God into a conundrum for no one pleases him. A conundrum that God just smiles. Smiles and says of his own son, this is my beloved in whom I am pleased who, our Lord and Savior, pleases the Father on our behalf and dies for our sins so that the Father's pleasure in his Son is now his pleasure in all of those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So last week we agreed with Solomon and the rest of Scripture and concluded with this thought, that since all worldly endeavors are futile, seek enjoyment in God's greatest gift, of which all other gifts point to the person of Jesus Christ. So Solomon, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has shown himself capable to take on the challenge of the meaning of Life And thus he's also able now to take on the next challenge, and that is purpose, the challenge of purpose. What is our purpose? It is in our passage this morning that he's going to take on this question of purpose by forcing to our conscience what's really in our subconscious, what it, but what is common to all, and that is he's going to force into our conscience time. Contrasting that reality to his reality and relationship to time, and then out of that contrast, reveal to us a surprising ending about purpose. So let's discover that surprise. We'll start with the nature of time, verses 1 through 8, and then the author of time, verses 9 through 15, and then our surprise purpose. So the nature of time. Now, we're intrigued by time. Consider this list of movies that deals with, with time. Perhaps you'll recognize, uh, recognize one or so, or so. World War II buffs. The Final Countdown, where the crew of the 1970s USS Nimitz aircraft carrier, if you don't know what that is, aircraft carrier with all of its jet power, enters a storm vortex and is transported to Pearl Harbor, 1941. Time Cop. Jean-Claude Van Damme (laughs) travels through time to catch criminals and bring them to justice. The romantic comedy, Groundhog Day. Where the arrogant Pittsburgh weatherman, of course Bill Murray, (laughs) is stuck in a time loop where he's required to repeat the reporting of Puxatani Phil emerging from his hole. X-Men, Days of the Future Past. 
Wolverine, Hugh Jackman, of course, goes back through time to stop apocalyptic events from unfolding. Edge of Tomorrow, another Groundhog Day scenario where we watch Tom Cruise's character get pummeled every day and is eventually becoming the savior against an overwhelming alien invasion. And the list goes on. Predestination, Looper, The Terminator, Star Trek, First Contact, or Star Trek, The Voyage Home, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And the classic 1960s time machine. And of course, back to the future. One, two, three. <laughs> Traveling through time in a DeLorean. Even Godzilla. Even Godzilla gets into the action and takes on time travel in the 1991 Japanese-made, that's the you know man in a Godzilla suit vintage, Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. And I'm sure I might have missed one of your favorite time travel or uh, movies about time, The Escaping of Time. There are hundreds of movies about time and time travel. We're fascinated. And time is a mystery. If you're having fun, time flies. If not, not so much. In the day-to-day, it goes slow. And then 20 years later, you ask the question, where did all that time go? It is a mystery. We're intrigued. We're intrigued by time, namely the desire and thought of escaping time to transcend time and then to ask the question, what would happen if it could happen and how might that affect present time? But then after exploring that possibility, we're brought back to the anchor of our own reality, that we are chained within time, and that's how Solomon begins his poetic pursuit of this reality with this thesis, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, again, there are the key. There's this key uh, code phrase of Ecclesiastes. He says, under heaven, which is synonymous with under the sun, and it is the idea of life apart from God, or in this case, life viewed simply from ground level. And our reality is this. We are confined within particular boundaries of time. Look what he says there. For everything, there is a season, boundaries of which we have no control. A time for every matter, or simply put, we are finite. And I find it interesting that just like we find art, drama in our case, to be the best medium to explore this reality, so Solomon masterfully uses art, a poem, to explore and express the nature of time, verses 1 through 8. And so without knowing much poetry, um, we know this is good poetry. Matter of fact, I'm going to guess that if you've never read Ecclesiastes, you at least have heard of this little section that we have here in, in the book. We know it is profound. We know it's, it says something. And we don't have to know much about poetry, but we know that it is one which uh, ha- has something to say to us. So look at verse, verse 2. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace, a time. Look again, 28 times this word time is mentioned. 
four times for every verse, seven verses, or another way of putting it is that there are 14 lines and the word time being distributed twice in each, couplets, seven times. Solomon, in his poetic skill, intentionally uses seven, for it is a common use of that number throughout Scripture to communicate a completeness. So Solomon wants us to think of these lines not as an exhaustive list of everything that happens within our lives, not as if he has captured everything that you are going to do in time, but rather he, it's an expressive of the, expression of the completeness of life, that this is expressing this completeness of one's life. So the first thing that we learn about the nature of time is that time is complete, that there's nothing that there is nothing that has happened to you or to our world that is outside of time. Nothing is new under the sun. Well, there's a second observation we can make about the nature of time, and that is time is cyclical. Cyclical. There's a significant connection between the first 12 verses of Ecclesiastes, not surprising since that is the introduction uh, of, uh, of the themes of the book, uh, a, a, a connection, a significant connection between that and what we're reading here. And it too, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, is poetic. And there we also find this cyclical nature, uh, uh, the cyclical rhythm, uh, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around and around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. So that he arrives at this conclusion, verse 9, at the end, there is nothing new under the sun. And so we have our own phrase. What comes around goes around. And we describe our experience of life. Life is like being on a merry-go-round. And there are times when we simply say, I just want to get off this carousel as an expression of the frustration of the weariness of the cyclical nature of life that seems to be going nowhere, so that from the ground level under heaven, life seems to be going nowhere. Thirdly, time is a grind. Again, the poetic genius. We are to feel the incessant march of time as we reach this section, time, 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 tick, 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 tick. Time just marches on. The clock keeps ticking. And there's no way to get away from them. Clocks are everywhere. They're on your Wrists, they're on our walls, they're in our cars, they're on our phones, they are ubiquitous, they're omnipresent, seemingly. You clock in, you clock out. The earth keeps rotating and there's no way to slow it down. The sun rises whether or not you have enough sleep after a late night out, whether your report is finished, whether you or whether or not you are ready for that tough conversation that you're going to have to have with your employer. Um, I have to watch the time so that you can rescue the child care workers from your children in cottage 10 and 11. <laughs> time just grinds on and on. Time is complete. Time is cyclical. Time is a grind. And fourthly, time is in control. And we cannot escape its grip. Solomon captures the reality of our finite nature of life in that first phrase there in verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. And in a real day-by-day sense, we are under its control. Solomon is forcing to our consciousness what is common to all, time. 
and what it teaches us about ourselves, our own nature, as we consider life from ground level, he is going to get us to this surprise ending about purpose as then now he takes us to the author of time. So the author of time, verses 9 through 15. Now to introduce, to introduce the author, he asks this rhetorical question, verse 9. So what gain has the worker from his toil? And the answer is implied, none. And again, since there is a significant connection between the first 12 verses of Ecclesiastes, the introduction, and chapter 3, uh, we, we, we hear that same question at the very beginning. Chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Apart from God, looking at life from the ground level only, there is no gain, no net profit from all of one's efforts. In 14 parallel lines expressing the completeness of time, the cyclical nature of time, the grind of time, and the control of time, each line, did you notice there, cancels itself out. There is no gain. For every loss, there is a gain, and for every gain, there is a loss. And we all know this, which is why God gave us socks. Open up your sock drawer. There's always at least one lonely sock looking for its mate. And just when you find that sock, you've lost another. We all know this, which is why we need to know the author just when it feels like there's no purpose, that there is no gain, Solomon asks us to back away from the day-to-day grind, or better, to fly out from the ground-level perspective of time and get the 50,000-foot perspective on time. And this is what we discover about the author of time. God is sovereign over time. And thus, God sovereignly controls time. God is sovereign. Uh, Look there at verses 10 and 11. There's some phrases in there I just want you to see. Verse 10, God has given. Verse 11, he has made. Or let's go down to, uh, I think, oh, oh, uh, one more there in verse 11. He has put. Or now down to verse 13. God's gift to man, verse 14, God does. God is sovereign. And God sovereignly controls time. So verses 10 and 11, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, and he has made everything beautiful in its time. The business is what fills our time. It's what's alluded to there in that poetic section, to seek, to lose, to keep, to cast away, to tear, to sow. We are busy with all kinds of busyness, and God has given this to us to accomplish all of this toil, this busyness, and this busyness is, verse 11, beautiful. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means appropriate, Beautiful, not in the aesthetic sense, it could be, but most likely not in my case, Um, but in an appropriate sense, everything we do with our time is under the control of God, and so he is accomplishing his purposes. Even our sin, which he permits, is appropriate for his sovereign purposes, So God sovereignly controls the times. He sets the times. So here at at, um, Sacred City, you'll, you'll hear this word. We call it God's story. God's story. Creation in the beginning. Fall. Romans 5, 12, sin came into the world through one man. Redemption, 
Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Shortly before his crucifixion, uh, Jesus told his disciples, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, my time is near. I will keep the Passover in your house. Restoration. After his resurrection, he met with his disciples and they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus replied, it is not for you to know the times and the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. God's timing, he's, he is, he's got a story going on. It's a story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And everything you do is working towards that story, in that story, perfectly, appropriately, beautifully. He sets the times and God sovereignly discloses some of the purposes of time. You see that at the last part of verse 11. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. God has, has put into the human heart a sense that there's something more to life than that ground level bookends of birth to death. We, we're not like the animals around us. And we know that. We know that our primary objective isn't just simply to get our next meal, that we're more than just another species. He has disclosed that there, are some, there is some purpose beyond the material purposes of life. And so three, God sovereignly withholds some of the purposes of time. Look at the end of verse 11. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Much of life is a mystery. Many things happen to us and we wonder why. What was the point of that? So that at times it feels like life is haphazard and random, and we are tempted to call it fate. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 calls it God's sovereignty. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things, much of God's decreed will, what he has decreed will happen in our world day by day. We don't get, and we don't get a no. That belongs to him. His revealed will belongs to us that we may do all his word. This is what we get. God, so God sovereignly discloses and he withholds. And so fully unable to understand the meaning of what God permits within your time, within our time, within the world's time, there is a place, a good gift of God to concentrate on the present. Look back there at verse 12. To be joyful in the present, to do good, make a difference where you live as long as you live, to enjoy your material gifts, to find and take pleasure in your work. There's a place for the present. But there's one more aspect to the author of time that Solomon reveals to us as he points us toward the surprise purpose. God sovereignly binds the times, sovereignly binds the times, verses 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, verse 15. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Here is the sobering reality. 
We are absolutely responsible for everything in our lives. We are responsible for his revealed will to do what he commands and expects of every human being, both by the conscience he has placed within a heart of every human being and the word of God that he has placed in the hands of some human beings. We are responsible for everything in our lives. And yet, in doing so, we cannot add anything to the past, nor can we take anything away from the past. And similarly, we cannot add anything to the future, nor can we take away anything from the future. Verse 14, he does whatever he pleases. So that he binds the times, and that means he packages up the times, and he creates a coherent whole, a coherent whole, so that no human being can hope to alter the course of things by some mere sheer present effort. Look at verse 15 again. See, Solomon reminds us that God transcends time, that what is taking place has already been, and that which is to be has already taken place, so that the point at the end of verse 15 is that God has the ability, now we would call this time travel, that's not exactly what the right concept for it assumes that time is transcendent over whoever is tra- uh, traveling. So just bear with me here. But he has the ability to time travel and seeks out what has been driven away by time and brings it back into the present. He can do what fascinates us and eludes us. He can go back to the future because he lives there. Past, present, future. He transcends time. So think of it like this. It's like a grandfather clock. And the pendulum that swings back and forth to count time. And it's like God is holding that pendulum that swings back and forth. He transcends time, binds it so that he does what he pleases in order to make a coherent whole. And that's sobering. But it's also a promising reality. For you have a story as well that fits into God's story. For you have a story of creation birth. You have a story of the fall. You're sinful. And perhaps you have a story of redemption. Faith in Christ And if that's the case, then you also are having a story of restoration because even now in time, he is working out the gospel into your life so that one day he will fully restore you. See, Paul had a a similar story. He had a story that sounded something like this. Philippians chapter three, as he reflected on his own life, uh, this is how he describes it. He says in chapter three, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So of course he's speaking of his birth. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Fall. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. I have suffered. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Okay, now we're back to that word gain again, net profit. 
We have net profit when we come to Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he speaks of that moment when the Lord appeared to him and he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Continues on in his own telling of his own story. He, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order they may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Restoration is beginning to happen in Paul's life as a result of meeting Jesus Christ that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from, from the dead, redemption and restoration in his life. See, why is this good that he, God does whatever he pleases and that he creates a coherent whole? Well, it, I say, uh, it says that as much as life might feel out of control, guess what? God is in control. And it says that there is a coherent purpose and a sovereign purpose, a surprise purpose for our lives. And here it is, back in our passage. Verse 14. So that people fear before him. Surprise. That's our purpose, that we fear God. Now, that's a surprise. That's not what I would have expected. I didn't think about the fact that, okay, God, what's my purpose? And so then I begin thinking through, what's the purpose of my life? I don't think, fear God. And I wonder, is that good? Let's explore it for a minute. The nature of time and our experience of it and the author of time and his relationship to it reveals this, his transcendence. God is transcendent. Transcendence is defined as exceeding the usual limits. To transcend is to rise above something, to go above and beyond a certain limit. So when we speak of the transcendence of God, we're talking about the sense in which God is above and beyond us. Beyond us. It describes his supreme and absolute greatness. He is higher than the world. He has absolute power over the world. The world has no power over him. He is an infinite cut above everything else. And that is what Solomon is trying to show us. We are finite, confined by time. He is infinite above time. This separateness is what we would call now holiness. God is holy. Now we have mixed feelings about holy. There's a sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it and repulsed by it. Something draws us towards holiness while at the same time we want to run away from it. Part of us yearns for the holy while a part of us despises it. Our, our attitude toward the holy is somewhat like our attitude towards ghost stories or horror movies. My, um, my sister-in-law's my sister-in-law, Tamara's sister, um, is the sweetest, uh, most giving person I know. I mean, she's just a real delight to be with. I love going to her house. She's just a lot of fun, very hospitable, great host. She's not the person I would have suspected that has a whole shelf of horror movies, DVDs. And so I asked her, why do you have all these movies? And she just laughs and she giggles. She says, oh, because they're so scary. <laughs> I can hardly watch them. <laughs> yeah. Com kind of 
wanting him, but oh, I don't want to watch him. But oh, I want to watch him. <laughs> Repulsed and attracted by the holy. This passage reminds us that he is holy and thus God is to be feared. Your life, my life, is in his hands today. See, death often frightens us. When we see another person, when we see another person dies, we were reminded that we are also mortal, that someday death will come to us. We are uncomfortable when death rudely intrudes into our lives and reminds us of what we will face at some unknown future date. Death reminds us that we are creatures. Yet as fearsome as death is, it's nothing compared to meeting a holy God. When we encounter him, the totality of our creatureliness breaks down upon us and shatters the myth that we have believed about ourselves, the myth that somehow we are some kind of demigods or at least junior deities who will never die and live forever. Listen to the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, as he describes having to face this this God. He, He says this in chapter 10 of Hebrews, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think you will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which you have been sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge the people It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God is to be feared. And it is this fear that should cause us to turn to God to save us from God's wrath. God's grace in Christ is the refuge from God's wrath outside of Christ. First John chapter 4, verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Now, where are we going to find that kind of love? Well, we're going to find it a few verses before that verse. A few verses earlier we read, in this the love of God has been made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, a sacrifice that took God's wrath, a sacrifice that took your punishment so that in Christ you no longer fear punishment. You no longer cower like a slave outside the household. Oh no, when you come to Christ, he brings you in, he adopts you. He brings you into his home and then you get to begin to enjoy the peace of a loving father in your life. Perfect love. But believer, Christians, the surprise purpose continues. It doesn't end there. No, we are to be continuing to fear God. No longer his punishment, but now we fear his greatness. And not just to continue to fear God, but now to delight in it. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 11 speaks of God's servants who delight to fear your name. Or you go to Isaiah chapter 11 verses 2 through 3 which speaks of Jesus Christ. It's pointing towards Jesus the Christ and it reads this way. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So our Lord Jesus, he feared, he delighted in the fear of God. And no wonder that the, no wonder we are to continue to fear. Fear of God is all over the scriptures. Listen to this, Proverbs 14, 16 says, whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress. And for their children, it will be a refuge. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. And he who has it rests satisfied. Psalm 112, 112 verse 1, praise the Lord. How joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying his commands. See, the fear of God brings us to redemption. And the fear of God continues then to bring restoration into our lives. Two more passages, two more illustrations will be done. I was sharing beforehand, we were praying, and I shared this before we prayed. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, so of course Paul is writing to those who are loved by God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Well, they're already in the beloved, so they're already saved. So he's not work for your salvation. Work out of that salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, why? Why, Paul? For it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We should tremble. The living God is in us, working out our salvation. (laughs) Eric reminded us as we prayed. He said, God, we don't need a tame God. We don't want to tame you. We don't want the dog that we put on our lap. Oh, no. We want to be, we want to worship the real God, the wild one. He's still wild. One more passage. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We're safe. A kingdom that cannot be shaken, but our God is still a consuming fire. And thus let us come into his presence with reverence and awe. Two illustrations. Um, John Piper, the pastor theologian, he gave this illustration. He was recounting a time when he had, was meeting one of his members at their home, and he had his six-year-old son with him, Karsten, and he came to the door, and up to the door, on the other side of the door, was a dock, and it was a big dock so that Karsten's eyes were eye to eye to the big dog. And as John was there, John Piper was there, he forgot something in his car, so he said, Karsten, would you go to the car and get that for me? So Karsten ran to the car. Well, the door was slightly opened, a screen door, and so the dog saw the running and chased Karsten to the car with a growl. The owner looked out the, looked out the door and said, Karsten, Karsten, he doesn't like it when you run from him. Maybe you should walk back. And Karsten, why don't you put your arm around his neck? So Karsten walked back and the dog growled. That was safe. That was safe. He doesn't like it when you run from him. It's not wise. Second illustration. 
Imagine you are caught in a terrible storm while climbing a very high mountain. The storm is so strong that you fear you're going to blow right over the side of the cliff. But then you discover a small cave where you can hide and find shelter so that even though you are safe, you can watch the storm go past with kind of a trembling pleasure. See, at first there was the fear that this terrible storm and and the awesome terrain might claim your life, but when you found a refuge and gained hope that you would be safe, it's not like everything went away. It's not like the fear vanished. The fear of losing your life now vanished. Only that life-threatening part vanished, but there remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be an adversary of such power. See, the fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. And oh, the thrill being here in the center of the awful power of God and yet protected by God himself. See, time reminds us that we're finite. God holds our time in his hands that we might fear him. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. God's grace in Christ is the refuge from God's wrath outside of Christ. Believer, enjoy. Enjoy the fear of God as you wonder and tremble at his greatness. Father, we pray, help us. I know what I do when someone near unexpectedly dies in my life. I run. My first reaction, Father, is not to think about it, to go on with life, to pretend somehow that's not going to be me. Father, our time is in your hands. You're outside of it. You're transcendent. Help us to remember that. Help us to feel that fearsome reality. Father, we pray if there's anybody here who has not yet found their refuge in Christ, that they would hide in him today. And Father, help us as believers in Christ not to, not to tame you. Help us not to tame you. Help us not to make you a lapdog. Father, remind us that you are wild and you're fierce. And that fear of you is our delight, for it is that which then restores us into the image of your Son as we work it out with fear and trembling that God is in us. Father, make this, make this truth true, please. We, just, we sang earlier, Father, make my heart believe. Make our hearts believe it, please. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the author of our salvation. Amen. <laughs>